you'd open your Bibles for scripture reading today to Romans chapter 10, we're going straight through this book of Romans, and we've come to the section of Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 21, which we'll be examining today, and we'll be reading in our scripture reading. Now, this comes after Paul had just said, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He is developing the gospel of God in this book of Romans, and he's going to great lengths to explain how the gospel reaches people. I mean, he really develops the sovereignty of God in all of this and how it reaches people. He goes through the mechanics of it. And then in verse 14, he says, how then will they call on him? Now, immediately we're faced with the pronoun they. This Wednesday night group, they're into this stuff. I mean, They analyze pronouns and antecedents. So the first question you have to ask when you read a pronoun they is what's the antecedent of the noun that it's taking the place of? And the answer to that is back there in verse 12, it's the Jews and the Gentiles, between the Jew and Greek. So it includes both of them. He's referring to both of them there. So how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long... I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. May the Lord add his blessing to that reading of that text. Very interesting text, very unusual text, and the exposition of it to follow later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Father, we bow before thee today, the great and glorious God of heaven and earth, to thank you for your great sovereignty in that you're over all and that you're through all. We see in this very context that Prayer is a critical part of people being saved. So on this Lord's Day, Lord, we would just like to ask you to save many, many people. We'll start with the people of this sanctuary. We ask if there's anyone here today who's lost, you'd save them. We'll go out to the live stream, Lord. If anyone is watching today, we pray you save them. We pray for those broadcasts that went out today on 58 radio stations that you would save people in the United States and overseas. We ask that you would save people by using your word on the website as well. Lord, as Paul prayed for the lost, so do we. We all have, I'm sure, friends and relatives who need salvation. So we would pray for them today in light of this passage that you would save them. Use your word to transform their minds and hearts. Create in us a burden and passion to share the gospel with the lost. And Lord, we cannot help but pray for our country and our leaders. Please save them. Turn their minds to making decisions that will benefit your people. Lord, you're a powerful God. You reveal yourself to be a powerful God. We ask that you use your sovereign power to do just that. Save the lost. 
We pray that you heal the sick of this church. We have many who are infirmed at the present time. We pray that you heal them and give them life, Lord. Encourage those that are hurting today and provide for the needy. Bless your people. Lord, we turn to you as the sovereign God to do all of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Major source of income in Israel is tourism. 4.5 million tourists are taken every year on tours in Israel. The top city that people want to visit when they go to Israel, of course, is Jerusalem. Another favorite city is one located just a few miles from Jerusalem, Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. When you tour the city of Jerusalem, they'll take you to the surrounding areas. You'll see the Mount of Olives. You'll get to see Calvary, where Christ was crucified. They'll show you a place where they think the tomb was, where Christ arose. If you're there long enough, they'll actually take you to Nazareth and to the very site that they say Gabriel actually appeared to Mary. Boy, those Jews there in Israel, they have a lot of knowledge there about Jesus Christ. Just recently, I read a fascinating statistic about sales of Bibles in the United States. 20 million Bibles are sold in the United States every year. 1.66 million Bibles are sold in the United States every month. 384,615 Bibles are sold in the United States every week. 54,945 Bibles are sold in the United States every day. 2,289 Bibles are sold in the United States every hour. 38 Bibles are sold in the United States every minute. 6.4 Bibles are sold in the United States every 10 seconds. Man, that's a lot of Bibles. There are about 1,600 Christian broadcast organizations in the United States that broadcast what they would call Christian programming. In fact, it's estimated that about 250 million people listen to Christian music or broadcasting every month. That's a big number. There are 20,000 private religious schools in the United States, and millions of children attend those schools. Plus, there are a lot of theological institutions. That's a lot of learning. Why is it, with those amazing statistics that are from Israel and the United States, there seems to be so few promotions of Christians? Why can't we turn on the news and hear things that honor the Lord? With all of the exposure that we have to all of this Christian activity, what's gone wrong here? We have actors and we have athletes and musicians and politicians. They all say they're Christians. So why isn't biblical Christianity dominating this country or Israel? The answer to that question is found right here in Romans. If ever there were a nation who had great experience and information about God, it was Israel. I mean, Israel had seen God do amazing things. She saw God do supernatural things for her that no other nation has ever seen. I mean, no other nation has had a guy walk in and say, we're going to start hammering you with a bunch of plagues. No other nation has ever seen God part a sea so the whole nation could walk across one sea in the middle of it. No other nation has had God actually visibly, physically display his glory. Plus, here's the Bible. The Bible was written by men from Israel. 
She saw God deliver her from enemies in miraculous ways. What other nation has been able to just walk around the city of an enemy and have the walls fall down? She saw God display his glory at her place of worship. We pray for God's presence to always be here in this place of worship. We've never had God visibly display his glory here. And if that's not enough, Israel as a nation actually saw the Son of God in person. Jesus Christ was there on the earth, and he came right to the nation Israel. He came to that nation. He presented himself to that nation as king. He died on a cross. He raised from the dead. She knew that. She saw that. They give tours of those places today. Tours of those places. So with all of this data that we have and all of this data Israel has, why is she lost? How come she doesn't have a close relationship with God that's seen by the whole world? Why can't we look at Israel today and say, man, you want to see where God works? Right over there. Look at Israel. Boy, there's the display of the glory of God. Paul says, I'll tell you why. Those who have heard the gospel that invites any sinner to call out to Jesus Christ for salvation will not be condemned for their lack of knowledge. They're going to be condemned for their arrogant rejection and rebellion against the truth. There's the bottom line of this. They don't want to respond to the truth. What is seen in this text explains why some of your friends and relatives aren't saved. This explains why most people will not call on Jesus Christ to save them. I mean, that's all they have to do. That's what Paul said in verse 13. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Most people aren't going to do that. And it's not because they've not heard the message. It's because they are arrogantly rejecting the message. They don't want that message. They're rebelling against that message. We're in a powerful section concerning the sovereignty of God in salvation and the sovereignty of God in election. God determined before the foundation of the world who would be in his family. He made that determination. But as we've been going through this part of the book of Romans, we've learned this sovereignty of God in election is deeper than we thought. I mean, this sovereignty of God in election is way beyond anything we can grasp. Obviously, election does not undermine evangelism. Because you still have to reach out and witness. That's part of election. It includes the proclamation and witnessing of God's sovereign power. It includes prayer for the election. It includes sinners calling out to Jesus Christ to save them. That's all part of that package. It's deep. It's mysterious. It's part of the sovereign plan of God. Now, in this text, we get to learn a little more about how God saves people and how he does elect people. And there are two main salvific concepts that Paul wants to develop here. And the first one is God saves sinners. How he saves sinners is through the gospel. Verse 14 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring Good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our report, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, all one has to do to be saved, as Paul wrapped this up last time, last Sunday, is call upon Jesus Christ to save them. Now, to do that, you have to hear that message. And what Paul is 
developing here is the whole process. He's going to great lengths to lay out how this grace gospel saves sinners. First of all, they must hear the word. Then they must hear the word from a preacher. And then the preacher preaches the good news of the gospel. And then the sinner responds to the good news of the gospel. Now, Paul is going to ask a series of questions here. How then, in verse 14, how will, in verse 14, how will, in verse 15, he's asking a series of questions that he's aiming at the Jews and Gentiles. He wants them to stop and think about this. There are four critical steps that he spells out here that will take anybody from a lost status to a saved status. Now, this is God's system that he's designed to save sinners. It's part of election. I don't pretend to understand all the depths of election, but it's all part of election, which includes Jews and Gentiles. So anybody here, anybody listening to this, step number one, a lost person must call on Jesus Christ to save them. He ends verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? The verb, how will they call on him, in verse 14, is a middle voice verb, which would indicate each individual person must in and of themselves make this call. In other words, individuals participate in the action. Every individual must make a determination, I'm going to call on Jesus Christ to save me. Paul says in verse 13, that's all they have to do. Any person who is willing to call upon the Lord can be saved. So no matter what sin you've committed, no matter what background you are from, no matter what your guilt is, regardless of the previous failures of your life, Paul says any who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Actually, the text literally reads all who or everyone who, which is a singular adjective and a pronoun. So anybody, anybody, Rich, poor, successful, failure, married, not married, man, woman, boy, girl, anyone from any background can call on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's the simplicity of the message Paul's presenting here. If you ask Jesus Christ to save you from sin, you'll be saved. You'll become part of that mysterious elect of God. That's all you have to do. Call on him to save you. As an individual, you're responsible to do that. You're responsible to call on the Lord to save you. You need to know that. You need to understand this. You're not going to be saved by being good. You're not going to be saved by being religious. Joining some religious club. You're not going to be saved by church membership. You're not going to be Saved by trying to keep the law, trying to obey a few commandments that you pick and choose out of the Old Testament. You're not going to be saved that way. Paul says, I'm laying out the gospel here. And step number one is a lost person must call on Jesus Christ to save them. So if you want to be saved today, that's what you have to do. You have to call upon Jesus Christ and ask him to save you. Now the second step is the lost person must believe in Jesus Christ to save them. He says in verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Now, what you need to believe about Jesus Christ is that he is the only one who can save you. You cannot be saved by the law because we saw in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the Lord God. You must believe that, that he is the God's savior. And you also must believe that God raised him from the dead. In other words, to be saved, to call on Jesus Christ to save you, you have to realize, I can't be saved by the Old Testament law. That's never going to save me. 
Only Jesus Christ can save me. He put an end to the law. And he's the one who is God. He's the one who is raised from the dead. So when a person believes on that, that person is saved. When they believe in Jesus Christ and call on him to save them. The third step in the process is the lost person must hear about a calling and believing on Christ from a preacher. Verse 14 says, How will they believe in him whom they've not heard, and how will they hear without a preacher? A preacher is a necessity to this whole matter of election. Whether I like it or you like it isn't the point. This is what God says. A preacher is a necessity to this whole process of election. A preacher has a responsibility to proclaim this truth and to confront religion and religious zeal. He has a responsibility to inform people that it is their job to call on Jesus Christ to save them. Every individual has the responsibility. Now, it's more than just an interesting fact to realize that the word for preacher, caruso, is a word that means to herald something like publicly. We're talking about proclaiming and announcing the gospel that focuses on Jesus Christ. So when Paul says that, how are they going to call on the Lord Jesus Christ? They need a preacher to tell them that. He's not saying what we really need is a bunch of guys who will go around the room and let people talk and see what they think. He's actually explaining here by the use of this particular word that what needs to happen is somebody needs to proclaim publicly the truth about Jesus Christ. It's part of the process that God uses to obviously save people. Now this is being lost today. Because this is actually talking about a person who publicly proclaims and heralds the gospel. God says, that's the way I save people. I actually work when my word is publicly heralded. And we'll stress that a little more in a minute. The fourth step to this is the preacher who preaches the good news of the gospel must be sent. Now notice carefully, verse 15, how will they preach unless they are sent? Look, this is God's system of salvation. I'm not the one writing the text, I'm expounding the text. And that is what is in the text. In order for one to actually be used of God to present the gospel to lost people so they'll respond, they need a preacher, and the preacher must be sent. Now, of course, the logical question to ask is, sent by whom? What does that actually mean? That this preacher who's supposed to publicly proclaim the gospel must be sent. Most that use this verse do so as they go out on deputation trying to get support to go on the mission field. So they go from church to church and they share with people that we want to go to the mission field and we need to be sent by you, the people, and so you, the people, need to support us so we can get out there on the mission field and present the gospel. And there's a place where that certainly needs to be done, and people want them sent by the church. And they take from verse 15 that this is their admonition, as it were, to go on deputation trying to get people to send them. But I don't think that's the grammatical point Paul's making at all. In fact... The word Paul uses for sent is the word apostle. Apostolosin is the actual word that's used here. The word sent suggests one who has official authority. And the verb is aorist passive, which means the person had nothing to do with this action. This person 
who's sent by God, has actually been called by God, gifted by God. This is someone who didn't send themselves. This was someone who was put in the position of having the responsibility to herald this truth by Almighty God. So Paul is saying if people are to be saved, if they are to truly come to terms with truth, they need to hear the truth accurately proclaimed publicly from one who's been called and gifted by God to proclaim his word. Some guys are called by God, some aren't, quite frankly. I'm being real honest here. Some guys, when you hear them, you go, there's something there. Then you listen to somebody else, you go, there's nothing there. Mr. Miles studied under Lewis Perry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. And he went to that school back in 1939. He described Dr. Chafer in his book, The Thrill of Ministry. I just want to read you what he said about Dr. Chafer. When he spoke or taught, there was nothing bombastic or oratorical. However, there was an intensity and conviction and authority that held me spellbound. Now, that's a man sent from God. In our world, there are about five different types of preachers. You have, first of all, the preachers that God calls directly. He doesn't do that anymore, but he did with Paul. I mean, he literally stopped Paul on the road to Damascus and called him directly into ministry. He did the same thing with Peter, James, and John. I mean, he literally went to them and he said, you follow me right now. I mean, Jesus Christ himself did that. So those were direct calls coming from the Lord himself. There are no direct calls today coming from the Lord himself. But then preachers are called indirectly. That is operative today. God called some of the men in the ministry through the selection of the apostles. Titus is a good example. God called some through spiritual people. Timothy was a good example. And God calls some through the local church selection. Stephen and Barnabas were spotted in the local church. These guys had a gift, and the church was able to spot it. Then there are some preachers who some men call themselves. Men call them. They don't pray. They don't ask God to lead them to somebody that will be a preacher. It's just a business deal. I mean, there are some people that men call. You get some guys that are in high positions of power in a church, and they just go out and find a guy, and they're not really concerned, does he have a gift? Does he have a calling from God? They don't even analyze that. So they just conduct a business deal and get somebody. Then you have preachers who call themselves. They're self-called preachers. They go from church to church, Usually they're connected to some family member who said, you know, you'd make a good preacher. Whether or not they know what they're talking about or doing doesn't even become an issue. Whether or not they have a gift doesn't become an issue. They do have an ego, and they call themselves into that. Then there's others that Satan calls. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, they appear as good religious people. They appear as angels of light. They can't rightly divide the scriptures. I mean, the Pharisees were like that. The Pharisees were of their father, the devil, and the Pharisees could analyze the Bible, but they couldn't make an impact. So what Paul is saying is if people are really going to be developed in the things of the Lord, and if people are really going to be saved, they need a sent, gifted minister by God that will stand and publicly preach and herald the truth. Then he brings out three facts about them. Three critical facts about these sent preachers. First of all, 
Those who are sent and do preach the gospel are beautiful to God. Verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. You know, when I first read that, I thought, here's what God did. He looked down through the people who would become preachers, and he said, they're all ugly looking, so I'll just say they have beautiful feet. (laughs) There might be some truth to that, actually. They don't have a good looking face. They don't have a good-looking body. They don't seem to be athletically built. So therefore, what I see about them that's beautiful are their feet. I was having dinner one time with Mr. Miles, and I'd probe him on people that he met with when he was at Dallas in 1939 and 40 and 41. Working his way through school, he was involved in the dining hall, and he would serve these big names of Christianity. I mean, names that are major names of Christianity, and he'd have a chance to talk with them and visit with them and everything. So I asked him about H.A. Ironside, because he had a lot of interaction with H.A. Ironside. He said, what was Ironside like? He said, that man was a student. He said he would go into the library, come out to do lectures, pull a book off the shelf, read the book, put it back on the shelf, come back the next year, pick up where he left off, and finish the book. He said he did that. He said, Ironside was a homely type of guy, and he said to me, you remind me a lot of him. (laughs) I miss that kind of interaction with him. So when you read this, their feet are beautiful. We need to put this in a historical context. Because you see, back then, if you were going to go somewhere and communicate the truth of God, you had to use your feet. Because you don't have internet, you don't have radio, you don't have television, you don't have telephone, you don't have iPads, you don't have text messaging, you don't have Facebook, and quite honestly, you don't even have a Bible. Because it wasn't compiled yet. So in order for you to actually go somewhere and communicate the truth of the gospel to someone, you literally had to use your feet. And Paul says, I want you to know, when you go and you proclaim the truth to people, you're beautiful in the sight of the Lord. When you tell others about Jesus Christ, and you tell them, you're not going to be saved by keeping the Old Testament law. You're not going to be saved by your works. You're only going to be saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ on that cross. You're beautiful in the sight of the Lord. So there's his first fact. His second fact is, those who are sent and do preach the gospel do not win all the people. Verse 16, however, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our report? All people must do to be saved is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and heed the good news of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. This grace gospel is amazing. It's amazing. You would think everybody would just jump at this. You mean to tell me that all I have to do to have a relationship with God is to call on Jesus Christ to save me? That's it. And the preacher sent by God knows not all people are going to do that. God literally did send his gifted men to Israel. I mean, he sent the best of the best to Israel. And very few responded to it. In fact, Paul quotes Isaiah from that 53rd chapter there, the first verse of Isaiah 53. Who even believed our report? 
And Isaiah 53 describes the wonderful work of the Lord Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for sinners. He would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And he goes, who even believed that? And by the way, I do want us to observe something very significant here. We don't change the message. We don't stop proclaiming the message just because people don't like it or believe it or respond to it. That is the message of grace. You call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Which brings us to his third fact. Those who are sent and do preach the gospel do know faith comes by hearing the word of God. Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You know, sometimes you'll hear somebody say, I'm just praying to have more faith. Nah, you don't need that. You need more word of God. You need more study. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. You need to be taught the scriptures. And by the way, notice how Paul words this. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. He doesn't say faith comes by seeing works. He doesn't say that. He says faith comes by hearing the word. True ministers of God understand that. True ministers of God understand that what is really the thing that produces faith is an accurate handling of the word of God. And then you take that handling of the word of God and you point it to Jesus Christ. And when he brings out the fact that faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, of course, he's referring to the nation Israel. The noun Christ Christos is the noun for Jewish Messiah. And so he's basically pointing out to Israel that they proclaim that. They proclaim that Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah. And as a result of that, some of the people wouldn't respond. Who believed our report, Isaiah said? But what we learn here is faith does not come by manipulation. Faith does not come by begging or pleading or marketing. Faith does not come by entertainment or gimmicks. True faith, biblical faith, comes from an accurate preaching and teaching of the word of God that is focused on Jesus Christ. You try to reach the target of a person's heart without the word, It's like trying to shoot a gun without bullets because you're never going to hit it. You'll never make it. This is how people are saved. That's the process. Paul says, I want you to carefully understand the process. The word of God is heralded. The word of God is preached. Not everybody responds to that. So then he develops his second salvific concept, and that is, How unsaved, non-elect sinners respond to the gospel. Verses 18 to 28, he wants it known. Unsaved people have heard. Verse 18, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has come out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Most unsaved people have heard the gospel. Most unsaved people have heard about Jesus Christ. And when... Jesus told his disciples, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They went and they proclaimed the truth about who Jesus Christ was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. They didn't want to hear what they had to say. So he said, I sent them out to other people. 
I sent them to my own. I came to my own. My own didn't receive me, so I sent them out to other people. I mean, they didn't want the message of grace. They didn't like the message of grace. The fact is, most people like a message of religious works. They would rather have you think we can somehow earn it and work for it, and we can somehow get before God, and he's going to just look at us and go, wow, you're a great prize catch for me. And he's going to let us come into heaven. They don't like hearing we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all under the condemnation of God, and only Jesus Christ can get us out of that. I'm curious in a congregation this size, I'm guessing we have close to 600 people here. I'm curious in a congregation this size, is there anyone here today who's never heard about Jesus Christ? Never heard a word about Jesus Christ? No. In fact, I talked not long ago with an atheist who actually brought up the subject of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No, the problem is not the fact that they haven't heard. Which brings us to the second reality, unsaved people have known. Verse 19, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Unbelievers know things about God. They can't plead ignorance. In fact, we saw earlier in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 19, that God has programmed every human being with the intuitive knowledge of himself and his existence. And Paul says, in quoting Moses in verse 19 and Isaiah in verse 20, to prove that they didn't know God, God took his program and he brought other people in. Other people that weren't even looking for a relationship with Jesus Christ. He wasn't their Messiah. He was Israel's Messiah. So he said, I went out and proclaimed this, but you people didn't want the truth. So what we did is we took the message, the gospel of grace, and we brought people into a relationship with God who knew nothing about what was going on in Israel. They weren't looking for it, seeking for it. And thirdly, and this gets at the bottom line of this, unsaved people are disobedient and arrogant. Notice verse 21, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Uses two interesting words here. The word for disobedient is apatheia. It's an interesting Greek word because it means we're talking about blatant disobedience. We're not talking about just confused We're talking here about someone who hears the gospel of the grace of God that in Jesus Christ they're set free from sin and from law and condemnation and they blatantly refuse it. The word obstinate, antalego, is a word that means to actually have a proud opposing attitude that wants to argue the point. Actually, that's in the word. Legos, I say. So wants to argue the point verbally. In other words, there are people who refuse to call out to Jesus Christ to save them. They want to argue with God about this. They actually want to verbally defend their belief with God. And there's your problem. I hope it's not yours. Because you just listened to the gospel today. You have knowledge. You have seen exactly what this passage is talking about. So we'll just wrap this up with one simple question. Have you personally, in and of yourself, called on Jesus Christ to save you? Whoever.
will call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. Let's pray. If you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, we would invite you to do it right now in the privacy of this moment, doing honest business between you and God. Father, we thank you for your word. We do our best to unravel it, Lord, to lay it out clearly, what you revealed in this text, but now it's up to you and your sovereignty and the mysterious things at work in minds and hearts of people. It becomes their responsibility to call on you for salvation. I pray that not one person would be out of the sanctuary today who has not done that. Pray they would believe and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.